If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 5 today. And Matthew 5 can be found on page 810 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chair. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along with us there. I want to say thank you again to Philip Holmes for sharing with us last week. I got to hear a lot of good feedback from him, just messages and stuff, and also got to listen to the recording. He did a fantastic job, so thankful for that. We're embarking on a new series for the summer. Um, Our normal habit is to do expository preaching, which means we take books of the Bible and expose who Jesus is out of the text. So that's the term expository is really just the idea of of digging uh, God's word out of the text, starting with the text and going from there. For the summer and occasionally other times, we often will do topical preaching, uh, but we're still trying to do it in an expository way. So what that means is we kind of come up with topics as an elder board, as a leadership team that we feel like we need to address as a church. Um, And then we find passages from the scriptures that address those topics in a clear and coherent way. Um, So we're still teaching from the Bible, but it's a little different in that we're not just going to be in this book all summer long. We're going to kind of jump around to different books of the Bible for the summer. So today it'll be Matthew. We're calling the series Truth Shaped. And what we want to start with is Jesus's view of his own Bible, right? Jesus's view of the scripture in Matthew. That's why we're starting in Matthew. And then the rest of the summer... This series, Truth Shaped, will look at different practices we have as a church, why we do things the way we do, because sometimes the things we do, frankly, are just weird to a watching world. And so why is often the question. Why do we do it this way? And so we want to look at the scriptures and see why God tells us to do things in certain ways, understand kind of just different practices, how we function as God's people, how we function as his church. So this week, Truth Shaped, we're going to look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And the big question I want us to be thinking about today is, are we willing to be shaped by the truth, or do we want to shape the truth and make the truth for ourselves? I think that's really the big question to kind of be asking in your own hearts and my heart as we think through this. So Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and I'm also going to read a little bit from Matthew 7. This section is often called the Sermon on the Mount, so it's a big portion, chapter 5, 6, and 7, a big portion that Jesus teaches on. Uh, And so we're going to kind of pick up on this theme of God's word at the beginning and the end of the sermon. So 5, 17 through 20 says, where are we? Here we are. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's a key word there. So Jesus is saying, I haven't come to throw it all out. I've come to fulfill. Verse 18, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a high bar he sets. Flip over, in my Bible, it's just one page. Flip over to 7, and we'll read verses 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great 
was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We believe here that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. The Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. That's what we believe. That's the starting point by which we function and operate. We know not everybody believes that, and that's okay. You're welcome to be here, Uh, but that's what we'll be talking about today. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us. God, we thank you that you love us and you've proven that to us through Jesus. And so God, as, as much as we have doubts and as much as we struggle with the ideas that we'll be talking about today, uh, we can rest in the idea that you've shown us your love, even though we've shown you rebellion and sin. So God, meet us where we are. We ask your spirit to come. We ask you to help us. We ask you to allow us to have open minds to consider you and to consider a voice and a truth outside of ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been reading some organizational leadership books lately as the church grows. You know, we're just trying to rethink how to be more efficient, how to operate uh, in functional ways and not dysfunctional ways. And an author I've really enjoyed is Patrick Lencioni because he writes from somewhat of a Christian worldview. Um, He writes kind of with faith and kind of servant leadership in mind. And he writes a lot of books talking about the idea of organizational health. And so one book in The Advantage, he talks about the need for, for vulnerability and accountability by leaders. The problem is often leaders don't want to be held accountable. Often leaders want to lead themselves and everybody else. And he shares one particular story about a CEO, a CEO that was very intimidating. This CEO is very bossy and very demanding, and he did not like to be held accountable by other people. Finally, his HR director convinced him that he needed the feedback, that he needed to survey the other executives on his team and get some feedback about his weaknesses and how the organization could be more healthy. So he finally gave in and he did the survey. He got some feedback. He found out what the executives thought about his weaknesses, but he just sat on the report for months. He sat on it. He wouldn't talk about it with other people. He wouldn't share the results of the survey. And again, the HR director finally convinced him, you know, you really need to bring this up at the staff meeting. We really need to talk about this. We need to work through these issues. And so the CEO was like, okay, fine. And he just reads it at a staff meeting and says, hmm, you don't think that's true, do you, to the team? And so again, he's, he's trying to push them away from this accountability. He's trying to push them away from what they said were his weaknesses And he keeps carrying on in this manner. And finally, one of the executives on his team speaks up and says, well, yeah, we do kind of think that's an issue. And this is why we put that on the survey. And we think it's kind of a problem in the company. And he kept pushing back. And he asked the other guys. And the other guys on the team backpedaled. The other guys on the team were like, no, no, that's not a problem. We don't think so. You don't have that weakness. Everything's fine. And of course, these cowards were the ones that had filled out the survey and said, yeah, these are problems in this business. And so this CEO was communicating a clear message that he didn't want to be shaped by any outside influences. He only wanted to shape the truth himself. He didn't want to be shaped by the truth. He wanted to make his own truth. And when we hear stories like this, I think it's easy for us to think, well, yeah, that's an arrogant CEO of a company, but that's not me, right? 
but it is. We're all the arrogant CEOs of our own little company, and we say, I don't want to hear from my team. I don't want to hear from anybody else. I certainly don't want to hear from God. I want to do life my own way. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It says it twice. There's often repeated Proverbs. That one's repeated. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And ladies, it's universal. It's not just men. It's not just a testosterone problem. But there's a way that seems right to humanity, but in the end it leads to death. We need external help. We need a truth outside ourselves to edit us and to speak to us and to shape us. But as humans, we naturally resist that. So what I want us to see is that God in his grace and in his kindness to us gives us that external guidance in his word. And Jesus has a very high view of this word. And so we want to look at what Jesus has to say here in Matthew 5. And the first thing I want us to key on is that we are shaped by all of Scripture. There's a uh, predominant mood in today's culture where we believe uh, we find truth and make truth on our own. And so we often approach the Scriptures and say, I'll just uh, treat it like a buffet, and I'll pick out the things I like, and I'll ignore the stuff I don't like, right? And what Jesus is saying is, you can't do that. It's an all-or-nothing deal. You have to submit to all of God's Word, all of the Scripture. We're shaped by all of Scripture. 5, 17, and 18, again, say it this way. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not coming along in line with what is the Marcionite heresy, which is um, the Old Testament God was meat and grumpy, the New Testament God is nice and friendly in Jesus, and we just chunk everything in the Old Testament. Jesus is like, don't, don't misinterpret grace to mean that I'm throwing out all the justice and law of the Old Testament. I'm not. I'm coming to fulfill everything that was said before. You can't pick and choose. I am coming in coherence, in continuity, in agreement with everything in the Old Testament. Jesus isn't coming in and saying, all right, I'm here. Throw that out. He's, he's coming in agreement with everything that was written before. Everything that was written before was that God is absolutely holy and righteous and demands that absolute holiness from us. And we've fallen, we've sinned, we've wandered in that we are not holy. We don't live up to God's standards for us. We don't reflect God's goodness to those around us. And we need a perfect sacrifice. Now in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of rituals and symbols that communicated that like, like flannel graph, like cartoons giving us pictures of God's holiness and our need for sacrifice. And Jesus comes fulfilling everything that that Old Testament talked about. And he clarifies it. He makes it more real for us. He goes on and he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some translations say a jot and a tittle. Have you all ever heard that phrase before? Not a jot and tittle. Funny words, right? Uh, the Greek is iota and karaya. Um, and so we've kind of got like a multiple language translation, translation thing where you've got Hebrew words and Greek words, and then we're translating it into English, you know, and we're, we're coming years later. So some people say iota and dot. Some say jot and tittle. I have a picture here to, to show what a jot and tittle is. Uh, the jot or the iota would be representing the Hebrew word yod, or not the Hebrew word, the Hebrew letter, yod. And so if you look there, see the smallest marking right there? I think I have a laser here. See the smallest mark would be the jot? 
It's the Hebrew word yod. It looks like an apostrophe. I keep saying word. The Hebrew letter. So it's a letter that looks like an apostrophe because it's such a small mark. It's a very small little mark. And uh, they're saying even those little small marks matter. He takes it even a step further. And here, the tittle, it's Greek karaya in our translation, it says dot, is what we would call today a serif. Anybody here kind of like a, a publishing geek? You know what a serif is on a font? So some fonts have no serif, sans serif, and some fonts have a serif. That means when you have letters, some of them are blocky, and some of them have just a little on the edge. You know what I'm talking about? The little wing. That's what serif means, a little wing. And so he's saying even the little edge matters. Every little mark matters. What Jesus is saying is that it all matters. All of Scripture, it's all important. Don't mess with Scripture. Have a respect for Scripture. Have a respect not just for the big ideas, but for the very words and letters of Scripture. It matters. It's important. The way in our tribe, in our kind of culture today, our circle of Christianity, the way we talk about this is with the term inerrancy. Raise your hand if you've heard the term inerrancy before. I kind of want to know how many people have heard this before. Okay, some have, some haven't. The term inerrancy means basically that the Bible and its original manuscripts is without error. Doesn't, it's not wrong. It's right. It's correct. So everything it affirms is true. Everything it denies is false. It's, it's an agreement with reality. It speaks truth. So inerrancy is no error. And so we affirm that all of Scripture is trustworthy. All of Scripture is true. Now, I will say in the history of Christianity that there have been movements that have wanted to say we honor the Bible and we believe the Bible, but we don't like the term inerrancy. And I'll just say up front, I like the term inerrancy. I believe it's true and helpful, and I don't fully understand people that don't like it. So I just want to, if you're one of those people, I just want to kind of give the benefit of the doubt and say, I don't really get you because I didn't grow up that way, right? I was raised in churches from the age of 12 on up that affirmed inerrancy. I went to a seminary of another denomination that affirmed inerrancy. So I've always been in circles where it's assumed and it's uh, believed in. Um, And one of the problems that people that like inerrancy would have with not using the term inerrancy is in the last hundred years, people that tended to push back against inerrancy would say things like, well, the scripture may have a factual error or a scientific error, but it's it's still true about faith. And here's my problem with that. Again, if, if you're f- from the other side and I'm misrepresenting you, please talk to me. I don't want to misrepresent you. But this is my understanding, is that s- people are saying, we don't like inerrancy because Scripture might be wrong about science and wrong about history, but it's right about Jesus. The, the problem is the Bible always weaves together science and history and faith. It doesn't separate those things out. So Enlightenment people like to do that. Modern scientific people like to do that. Descartes likes to do that. Kant likes to do that. We like to say we've got facts, science, history over in this bucket, and then we've got faith over here and its values and its ooey-gooey stuff that you you can't impose on other people. The Bible doesn't separate them, though. The Bible says those things are inseparably linked, that our faith is based on a historical reality of a God who entered space and time and history and took on flesh and lived a perfect human life in this scientific historical world. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And he took all of our sins upon himself. 
but he didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead. And is that crazy? Yes, it's crazy. Because in our scientific, historical world, people just don't rise from the dead. But Jesus did. And so our faith makes a scientific assertion. It's making a historical assertion. It's saying this happened in the real world. So we can't separate out faith from science and history. It's woven into our faith. And I would argue that Christianity is uniquely bound together like that. Many other religions, I don't want to say all of them, but many, if not most, other religions can separate them out and say, over here we've just got ooey-gooey leap of faith stuff in this bucket, and over here we've got reality. And they're two different worlds. And they can agree with Kant and Descartes and all the Enlightenment thinking. We'd say, no, they're, they're knitted together. It's, it's one universe that God broke into in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so all of that is why we like the word inerrancy, because the word inerrancy says, yeah, it asserts true things about reality. And of course, there's caveats. Of course, there's um, context matters, right? You don't want to just flip it open and read a verse and just interpret it woodenly, just that one verse. You want to read it in context. The Bible has different writing styles, right? There's historical portions of the Bible, and there's narrative. There's uh, poetry portions of the Bible. There's didactic, which just means straight up teaching parts, right? So there's just different kinds of writing and different styles. Um, and this is seen uh, in a lot of different parts of the scripture. You're kind of reading different styles. You want to interpret it in light of that genre, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't interpret a song in the same way that you would interpret a chemistry textbook, right? They're just, they're going to have different guidelines and different thoughts. Uh, one of the gripes that people bring against the scriptures is there's a point in which it describes um, pi, which we would say is 3.14, but in the scripture, it's that pi is, you know, the scientific number pi. Um, it's, you know, we know it to be 3.14, but really, it's got like a million more decimal points, right? So we get all bent out of shape and go, well, it's really 3.14, but in the Bible, it says 3. And we think we're all smart. Well, well, really, it's more than 3.14, right? It goes on and on and on and on. So, I mean, that's just a genre distinction, right? Same, same argument could be said about a weatherman. When a weatherman says the sun is going to rise at 6 a.m., we don't accuse the weatherman of not knowing that the sun doesn't really rise, do we? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a problem of misunderstanding genre and just how ordinary people speak. So we would affirm that the Bible is true and factual and inerrant, and at the same time, speaks like regular people speak, just like the weatherman says the sun rises. We, we can do that and still be telling the truth. I really want to encourage you to read a document called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. If you have questions about inerrancy, if you were raised in circles that do not affirm inerrancy, uh, just locally kind of organizations like the University of Mary Hardin-Baylor, their religion department, they've got professors in the religion department that would say, we like the Bible, but we don't like inerrancy. And again, I don't I don't pretend to understand how that's possible and how they can do that. It doesn't make sense to me. So I want to be, be gracious and just say I don't, I don't fully understand that side. But I would say most young people that I know that don't like the term inerrancy are you know, young college kids that have read a couple of articles about it, but they never read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is this big statement that a lot of Christian professors and pastors came together in 1978 and crafted on this is what inerrancy means. It's a very thorough statement. There's a book or a booklet, a very small book, see it's this thin, called Explaining Inerrancy by R.C. Sproul. I would highly recommend that to you if you've never uh, read about it or studied about it. If you still have doubts or questions, it does a great job of just kind of hammering out all the details of what that means.
because we don't want to say it in a wooden kind of fundamentalist way where we're not paying attention to context, but we do affirm it. We do believe it's true. So we're not saying without context, without caveat, but it's true. We believe Scripture is true, and we can trust it. So my uh, question for us is, are you submitting yourself to all of Scripture? Are you personally, am I personally submitting myself to all of Scripture? Often I tell people, if you're just beginning to read the Bible, start with the easy parts. And I would still say that, right? If you read the Bible and you have a hard time understanding parts of it, well, just read the easier parts. Read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read the parts that you get. Because I'd really rather get you in the Bible and get you reading it. But there's another kind of uh, avoiding of certain parts of Scripture that I want to address, and that's when we read parts that convict us and challenge us to change. Where God's truth is wanting to shape us, and so we say, I don't want to read that anymore. Because that's hard and I don't want to change. That's what I would challenge you with, and that's what I would challenge myself with. I would just say, what are those parts? What are those parts of Scripture where you read it and you're like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. That's different than I don't understand it, and I'm going to read stuff I understand. This is a different category. This is I don't want to submit. I don't want to allow God's Word, His truth, to shape me. And my prayer would be that we would be a people that allow God's truth to shape us, that we wouldn't be like an arrogant CEO that says, I don't need any feedback. I can make my own truth, but that we would be humble. Fascinating studies by another guy that does business research is a guy named Jim Collins, and what he's also found affirms the research of Patrick Lencioni, who writes about business leaders. And what Collins writes is that the big difference between good organizations and great organizations, one of the key differences is humble leaders. Leaders that cannot uh, handle outside truth shaping them do not lead successful organizations. They might for a little while, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last. And so my heart would be that we would be those kinds of people, that we would be humble. That we, we'd be listening to outside voices from God's word. That we would submit ourselves to the authority and the relevance of Jesus' words here in the scriptures. Another book that's helpful to understand inerrancy is the book Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, he's also got a podcast from last year's... Uh, together for the gospel or something. I can't remember. It was some conference, but it was just from last year. He spoke on a, on a portion of the same book, uh, but he really helps us to understand Jesus's attitude towards scripture. Jesus took scripture seriously. So what a lot of people do today in this mushy middle ground of, I like Jesus, but I'm not sure about the Bible, which again, just doesn't even make sense to me, is they say, well, Jesus is more important, even though scripture might have errors and problems, and DeYoung does a fantastic job of showing, well, Jesus thought that Scripture was absolutely inerrant. That's how Jesus handled the Scripture himself. So it's important for us to think through it from that perspective. And then finally, w- one more resource that I would throw out if, if you're more advanced and you've studied this uh, at more of a philosophical level would be Mike Williams has lectures online at the Covenant Seminary website. So the seminary I went to, Covenant Seminary, has free lectures. You just have to give them your email kind of thing. Um, but they have free lectures from all their master's classes, and he has lectures on God and his word. So Mike Williams' lectures on God and his word. Uh, if you've studied this at a more advanced level and want to learn more, I would highly recommend those to you as well. The, the next thing I want us to understand is that we are shaped by the goal of Scripture. So not just every little jot and tittle and every detail, all the words matter, but the big picture matters as well, right? The big picture matters as well. And so 
what Jesus was always uh, pushing back against the Jewish leaders uh, on was that they would obey the jot and tittle, but miss the goal, right? They would say, we're keeping every letter and we hate you, right? And he was like, well, that's, that's not working. You got to love God and love others. That's, that's the bigger goal. So don't say you're keeping every little piece of scripture and you're all careful about the jots and the tittles, but you're missing the bigger goal. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says it this way. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this pushes us for our need of God's grace, recognizing that those people that are so meticulous and are keeping every line of the scripture are still missing it. Religious people can still miss it. And we really need to hear that because we're all in a church right now, right? So that means we are the religious people in today's day and time. No offense to some of you that that hate that term. I'm sorry, but we we just have to be careful about this, right? Because we could become like these Pharisees who say, well, I'm keeping the letter of the law, but I don't really love God, and I don't really love other people. But I'm obeying the jot and the tittle and every little detail. But I'm not loving people and keeping the goal of Scripture. I think about the concept of a finish line here. We have a race from the Olympics. I was saying earlier, I don't, I don't remember this race because it looks like Usain Bolt is losing, and I don't think he generally loses races. But anyway, this is someone crossing a finish line. It's a picture of someone crossing a finish line. And we need to be able to remember the finish line, the goal of where we're trying to go with our life. God wants us to live a righteous life. So there's complete coherence. There's complete agreement between the moral law of the Old Testament and the moral righteousness that Jesus calls us to in the New Testament. There might be administrative changes, right? Um, Galatians and Hebrews is very clear that the Old Covenant was finished when Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus kept it perfectly, died, rose from the dead, and now we're under the new covenant. But in the new covenant, God writes his law on our hearts. So that's what Hebrews 8 tells us when it quotes Jeremiah. It says in the new covenant, it's not like Jesus says, I'm throwing out everything from the old days and now we're starting a new system. No, he, he fulfills it. He helps us fulfill the goal of scripture, which is righteousness. He wants us to honor each other, to obey his law, to be kind, to be loving, to be just. That's the point. That's the goal. And we can misunderstand that when we start to think, well, it's all by grace and God forgives me, so it doesn't really matter what I do, right? No, it it matters. The point of forgiving you is so that you can now begin living righteously and now begin living out that law that he's writing on your heart. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. None of us are perfect, but that's the direction we're running in. We're running in this direction of living in a new way, living righteously. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a great verse that we go to to highlight God's grace. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith, by grace, by trusting what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's how we're saved. That's how we're brought into the family. So running the race of life, doesn't earn me a spot in God's family. God gives that to me by his grace. God forgives me for, his, for my sin. God adopts me into his family. So I'm not trying to be righteous to get God to love me. 
I'm running my race. I'm trying to be righteous because he loves me. Because he saved me out of the slum and he set me on the racetrack. And he said, okay, run now. Run. So one way might, you might be able to think about it is the starting blocks and the finish line. If you've, some of you may not have run track before, but they have just little, little blocks that you can put your feet on to kind of give you a boost when, you're, when you start running. Um, and so it helps you start faster. And so you could think about grace and faith in Jesus as, as the start, but the finish line being the righteousness that Jesus would have us all live. That's the goal of Scripture, that we would live differently, that we would actually love God, that we would actually love each other, that we wouldn't be just consumed by our own selfishness and self-destructive addictions, but that we would have a capacity to be satisfied in Jesus to such a degree that we could love others and we could be like God. We could bear his image. God, the one who is righteous and the one who is gracious, we can't be there unless we start with his forgiveness, with his grace, and then we run the race of righteousness. And you've got to be careful with analogies because, of course, they're not separate either. It's not like you leave the starting blocks of grace behind. Every step is by God's grace. Every step that we take is by God's grace. But there is a point. There's a goal. The goal is that we would live differently, that we would live in righteousness. So again, what is God asking you to do? What is God challenging you to change in your life? To be Christians doesn't mean to be people that we believe we've arrived. We've gotten there. We're now the good people huddling together. No, we're the people saying, God, help me. God, help me. I need your help. Help me to live righteously. Help me to love the people around me well. Help me to give up these addictive habits. Help me to live in a new way. What, what are the things that he's challenging you with right now? What are the things that God is saying you, you need to change? Not to win my love, but because I love you, I'm coming to you in grace and saying you need, need to change because this is killing you. Again, God's not standing off to the side saying, once you get that figured out, then come talk to me. He's entering in. He's coming into this world. He's saying, I love you and I love you so much that I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to challenge you to live differently now because he loves us so much. So we should be shaped by the goal of the scripture. Our righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. We should be more righteous than religious hypocrites. We should actually love God and love others. The last thing I want us to see is that we're shaped by the Lord of Scripture. We're shaped by the Lord of Scripture. I'm going to read again verse 17, which says it this way, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I want to just emphasize the fulfill them. It was Jesus' job to, in continuity and in agreement with everything in the Old Testament, to fulfill everything that they spoke of and promised. And that's who Jesus is. Again, the Marcionite heresy was when Marcion said, I don't like the Old Testament. He's mean and grumpy. Let's throw it out. Marcion also threw out half of the New Testament as well. Jesus says, no, I'm in perfect agreement with the Old Testament. I'm in perfect agreement with the Old Testament. God is righteous. God is holy. And he's also gracious. And Jesus says he's the one that comes to fulfill it all. This great passage in Luke 24 has Jesus appearing after the resurrection to the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and communicating to them that all of the Old Testament is really about him, that he is the main point, that he is the Lord and the master of all of Scripture. So flip now over to chapter 7. It's the last few verses I read earlier. And in chapter 7, 24 through 29, it highlights this even more. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Saying the rock is the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, my words are in agreement with the words of the Old Testament. He says, he's the Lord of of all of this, the person of Jesus. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught with authority because he was the Lord of Scripture. He's very clear that he is the one that's writing the Scripture. Now, we understand the way inerrancy works, the way inspiration, as 2 Timothy says, the words of Scripture are breathed out by God. So we believe they are the very words of God. And we believe the actual how of how that took place was, was different from author to author. We're not making an assertion of, you know, that it was robotic and that God just said, okay, A, A, man, man, went, went, to the store, to the store. You know, it's not like, not like necessarily that's how the scripture was inspired. Sometimes, maybe, certain prophecies, it was that direct. We, we also believe that God worked through the creativity and the mind of the authors. We, you know, you can see that in the, the styles. Different books of the Bible have different styles, and they, they bring into context the, the experiences of the different authors, human authors that wrote the scriptures. So we're not denying, denying that there are human authors involved in the process, but we're affirming that God is God, and he's big enough to use human authors to breathe out his word and write what he wants us to hear. And we're saying Jesus is that Lord. Jesus is the Lord of scripture. He is the divine author. So I have a picture here just to kind of uh, embed that in your mind of someone writing with the pen. Again, we, we believe there are actual you know, other people involved that wrote with pens and wrote on, on parchments and all that. But we believe behind those human authors, there was Jesus. There was the triune God communicating to us, talking to us because he loves us. Because he loves us. There's a person, there's a Lord behind all of Scripture. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is a person. He's someone we can trust. In this uh, movie, Noah, any of you seen the, the Noah movie that came out a year ago? Yeah, so so inter- interesting movie. They didn't really follow the Bible, right? But creative <laughs> at points. And one of the things that, that kind of broke my heart was there's this kind of wrestling you see in Noah, which I believe Bible heroes wrestled and doubted and all that. So I don't have a problem with doubt being represented in a, in a movie. But he kept saying things like, why won't you speak to me? Why won't you talk to me? And he was playing on this motif that has become a really common motif in art and music for modern man that, that God's silent, that he's not speaking. But he is speaking. The new Mumford and Son song, uh, Believe, it's, it's, there's been a lot of debate about it because they dropped the banjo, right? Y'all, y'all probably been really concerned about that. They stopped using the banjo, switched to electric guitars, you know, big controversy about that. But the lyrics, if you get past that part, the lyrics are really interesting because in the song, and it, it could be about a lover, but a lot of their songs are wrestling with God. And I believe this is one where he's wrestling with God. He's saying, say something. Say something. 
say that you love me or that you're thinking of me. I see the same motif that we see in a lot of literature, a lot of art, and you'll hear a lot of just people say it in conversation. I wish that God would speak to me. There's a song by Andy Gullihorn where he says, I'm walking through a garden of a thousand burning bushes looking up to heaven for a sign. Takes a minute for you to get it. I'm walking through a garden of a thousand burning bushes looking up to heaven for a sign. God is speaking to you. God is speaking to you. He's speaking to you through his word. And even more specifically and more pointedly, he's speaking to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ who comes to you in your sin and he says, yeah, that is a lot of sin, but I'm giving myself for you. I've given myself for your sin. I've taken your sin upon myself because I love you. Now walk in righteousness. Trust me. Believe. So don't miss the Lord of the Scripture. He has spoken. He is speaking. He's speaking to you right now. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us in silence, but you speak to us in creation by showing your power and your character and your nature and the beauty of everything that you've made. And you speak to us more dramatically and more specifically in the very words of Scripture telling us that you love us and that you're thinking of us. We thank you for giving yourself to us in the cross that by faith in you, we can be adopted as your children. I pray that you would grow us in that faith. God, help us in our unbelief. Help us in our doubts. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.